Good. All right. Good to see everybody today. Praise the Lord. It's finally getting cold around here. I love it. I'm sorry if you hate it. I like the cold weather myself. Me and Robert Reese were vigorously debating this the other day. Apparently, he likes walking outside his house and in two minutes being soaked in sweat. Uh, I do not. Amen? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, good deal. Well, uh, what is this? DTX rules. Um, Okay. Just make sure I don't associate myself with anything that's not... uh, yeah, I guess this brown one works, right? Okay, you guys, well, today we are looking at the covenant of grace. Um, this is really, really exciting for us uh, because the covenant of grace oops, is so critical and so important for theology. Um, when did you find out about the covenant of grace? Kada, when did you find out about the covenant of grace? How long ago? A few years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Three or four years ago, yeah. yeah. Anybody find out about the covenant of grace sooner than that? Maybe in the last two years? No? Yes? Okay. Don't be, ash- don't be ashamed. Testify. Go ahead. Come on now. How about, how, about, how about in the last year, it's the first time you've heard of the covenant of grace? Yes? Anybody else? Yes? Yes? Good. The reason I ask that is because um, the covenant of grace, you know, is something that I didn't, uh, what I want to say grow up, but I would say probably early on in my Christian walk, I was not aware that there was a covenant of grace. I didn't know what uh, theologians and people were talking about when they referred to the covenant of grace. What is the covenant of grace? I didn't, you know, it's kind of like the guys in Acts chapter 19. We did not even know if there was such a covenant of grace, right? Um, because um, unless you are familiar with Reformed theology, you really will not hear about the covenant of grace. Uh, if, you, um, if you have been brought up in dispensational thought, for example, um, not only do they not teach the covenant of grace, they actually speak directly against the covenant of grace, they do not acknowledge a covenant of grace. And I've talked about this before, but despite what we might call uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, might as well turn there in your Bibles because we'll be there today, but Genesis 3.15, but despite what you may call this, um, uh, even, I think, the most staunch uh, dispensationalists will have to acknowledge some sort of evangelical thrust in Genesis 3.15, meaning that there's some sort of gospel message that is contained in this verse. Uh, And therefore, uh, you can see that it has far-reaching effects. Well, Reformed theologians went a bit further uh, in their understanding of Genesis 3.15. And what they saw here was not simply uh, good news or some sort of like a surprising good news that comes in after the fall, right? Because, you know, Reformed theologians, what they say is that, well, you know, we've already identified that God is a covenantal God who created all things, and that this covenant God also uh, put Adam in a covenantal arrangement uh, back in chapter 2, 
right? We looked at that with the covenant of works, verses 15 to 17. Um, And then what they're saying is that, well, look, what happens after the covenant is broken is that there is a judgment that comes. And in the midst of judgment, God also issues forth a promise. And so that is really what the covenant of grace is all about. Um, Did anybody get the notes through email? Yeah. Okay. so let me just read my definition of the covenant of grace uh, based on just what others uh, have defined it as and. And just trying to emphasize certain points myself. This is what I said. I said, the covenant of grace is God's promise oath to reverse the effects of the fall and redeem a new humanity through the perfect obedience and righteousness of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, whose merit is imputed to the elect by grace through faith. Uh, the reason that last portion is very, you've got to specify by grace through faith is because faith is sort of the operative principle here. And as a matter of fact, as we'll see and as we will go on, faith is the condition of the covenant of grace. What was the condition of the covenant of works, Landon? Think. Obedience. It was perfect obedience to God's law, God's commands, right? Found in verses uh, 15 through 17 of chapter 2, where he commands the man, saying, and then he tells him, you know, you can eat of all the trees except the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So right there, Adam was uh, given God's law, his command. Uh, I, I don't remember at what point, but at some point, it dawned on me that that word command, same word, that the Israelites received after Sinai. I mean, think about it. You're talking, you know, a thousand, you know, years or so. Fast forward from this time to Moses, and you know, the author of the Pentateuch, Moses, is using the language of the contemporary Israelite in the garden. <laughs> you know, that's just that's amazing to me. You know, which means that Moses, when he wrote the Pentateuch, had a theological agenda. He did. Moses was a theologian, you guys. Do not think for a moment that Moses was just kind of, you know, this sort of archaic, you know, Bible figure that really didn't know much other than that God appeared to him in a burning bush. Oh, no, 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 no. No, we would have a very perverted view of Moses and the people of the Bible if that's our view. How many of us, if we're honest, think about the people of the Bible that way? Almost as if these guys are sort of largely ignorant and just kind of finding things out as time goes on, right? And they just, they don't really know a whole lot unless God says, thus saith the Lord. Then they somehow become aware of truth, right? Or something like that. Well, no, because we know, based on First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following, that the people in the Old Testament, what does it say? They made careful searches and inquiries to see what manner of time and person Um, the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So we know the Old Testament uh, people, the the authors of Scripture, were meticulous Bible students, okay? So we would have a very, very low view, and I think we would have a bad caricature in our mind if if we think that someone like Moses did not have a very good theology or a very deep theology, quite to the contrary. Matter of fact, uh, there's a book written about the Pentateuch, a very famous book by a very famous author. His name is John Salehammer. And John Salehammer actually argues that the Pentateuch is written from a fully developed messianic theology. Wow. And what he's saying basically there is that Moses fully had a grasp 
of messianic theology. No, no, not f- not, not in terms of like a full-orbed messianic theology. This, I mean, he wasn't going to say the word Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he definitely understood messianic theology such that the entire Pentateuch is informed by Moses' messianic theology. That's amazing to think about. I mean, think about Deuteronomy 18, right? Is that where you're at? Uh, is that what you were thinking, Brian? Uh, right, that's right. What does it say? I mean, think about that. I mean, even earlier than that, right, in chapter uh, 4 or chapter 3, when it talks about, you know, that there was an angel standing in the bush speaking to Moses, so many Christians don't know that. They think it's a burning bush and there's voice out of nowhere, but the text actually says that there was an angel standing in the bush speaking with Moses. Well, what angel was that? I would argue that's the angel of the Lord, which is the early... Uh, Christophany, okay? That's my position. <laughs> but, uh, so we see that. We see that the authors of Scripture had a, f- had a much deeper theological grasp than maybe we are willing to give them uh, credit for. Now, that, that kind of opens up a whole debate. How much did they know, right? There's kind of a back and forth on that point. Uh, some people would say, well, no, they, they, there's definitely certain things they did not know. And that's, that would be true as well. Um, but uh, any questions about any of that? Oh, they don't really matter. <laughs> uh, I had this conversation with Artazertia, uh, Arturo Azertia. Uh We had this conversation about how much did the prophets know, and um, he he seemed to be more on the side of the. He doesn't think they knew as much on certain points. Where I was kind of like, well, this is the car. This is the car ride on the way from the airport to our house, and uh, this is what we were talking about. So, um, so yeah, you know, just just maybe degree of knowledge. You know what I mean? Like, how much did they really? How much of the theology did they really understand? And my studies of scripture, like for example, years and years ago, I was preaching the book of Hosea. And so I was steeped in the Minor Prophets, and we're actually going to be back in the Minor Prophets here uh, before long. And um, um, and I, I was amazed as I was, you know, because when you're in one Minor Prophet, like let's say Joel or something, then you find yourself bouncing back and forth in the Minor Prophets. Because, I mean, there's an amazing uh, harmonious theology that emerges just out of the Minor Prophets, right? And you're just amazed at how much they knew. It's like, that, that's what I'm saying, is that just when you, just when you start questioning that they, they must have not really known that, then something in the text strikes you to be like, oh, wow, maybe they did know. I mean, <laughs> this is amazing, you know? Think about Hosea, right? Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, the way that he quotes Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, where it talks about, let my son go that he may worship me, right? Hosea quotes that in chapter 11 as, uh, as being some sort of a foreshadowing of Israel's uh, dilemma with the captivity in Assyria. I mean, that's amazing, right? That Hosea is looking back at the Pentateuch and applying that redemptive historically to his own situation, right? And uh, Matthew then quotes Hosea chapter 11 in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, where he talks about Jesus, the ultimate son, being called out of Egypt, that he may 
you know, serve the Lord. So amazing, just amazing. So that's what I'm talking about. It's little things like that that show you, man, they knew a lot more than we maybe give them credit for. Keep that child quiet back there, please. <laughs> Those funny things are just supposed to be at home. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so, so. I, I, I thought I would just talk about that because I think uh, I remember when I first heard about the covenant of grace and it was reading Wayne Grudem's book, his systematic theology. This was probably back in, I think in 2001 or two. I was like, this is not what we're studying at our church, <laughs> right? Like Calvary Chapel does not teach the covenant of grace. I'm like, what is Wayne Grudem talking about? You know what I mean? And Wayne Grudem's section, if you've read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, since you've all read it cover to cover, I bet, but if you've read his section, at least in the covenants between God and man, he talks about that. It's very short. It's a very short little chapter. It is not, it is not at all um, an extensive treatment of the covenant of grace. So um, that comes later with other theologians like uh, Burkhoff uh, and, of course, um, probably even more so with guys like Hodge, and Bavink, yeah, or because Bavink. Because you brought up systematic theology. Yes, sir. You named the Wayne Grudem one. Yep. Would that be your systematic theology of choice? <laughs> as maybe no. I want to use the phrase as an introduction. Mm. Would you recommend that mm. one over Burkhoff? Uh, no, I wouldn't recommend it over Burkhoff. Okay. I couldn't. No, because Burkhoff is better. It's more scholarly now. Um, I think I think Grudem is, Gru, yeah, Grudem is uh, Grudem is important because he wrote a systematic theology at an evangelical level where everyone could understand and profit from it. So that is important, you know what I mean. But there's just some things. I mean, not to get all uh, controversial, but there's just some things I disagree with Grudem on there, and you know, I think he just emphasizes way too much the charismatic gifts. Like he spends almost 100 pages talking about that, you know what I mean? And and the way he does it, you know what I mean? I think he introduces some pretty dangerous things in there about, like, how you can receive infallible revelation and then speak it fallibly. I, I don't know. I just We don't want to get into that. That's not the discussion for today. But I think with Burkhoff, the reason I would say Burkhoff over Grudem is because Burkhoff, man, I tell you, when you're finished with Burkhoff, you feel like you've gotten a world-class education, you know, like every doctrine, he'll tell you the Lutheran view, he'll tell you the Catholic view, he will tell you, you know, the, the, and then the Reformed position, and you feel like you've just gotten away with this historical theology, a systematic theology, and some biblical theology. It is just that good, even though I disagree with him as a Presbyterian. Um, so if I only had one, that would be the four volumes by Bavink, no question about it, which we have on the, we'll have at the bookstore as soon as we can find some room for all the books that I bought. <clears throat> anyway, we have a whole other bin that I bought. But anyway, and Bavink's in there. It's on its way. <laughs> uh, what is the covenant of grace? Anybody want to define it or talk, talk about what it is and, and what it concerns uh, in terms of the covenant of grace? Anybody want to? What is the covenant of grace? What's it been, what are different ways that it's been defined or different things that it's been called? The eternal covenant? Well, that's an interesting idea. I think th- I think there is some continuity, obviously, with the covenant of grace and the eternal covenant. Uh, when you say the eternal covenant, what are you referring to? New covenant. The new covenant. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so covenant theologians would say that the covenant of grace finds its ultimate fulfillment 
an expression in the new covenant, right? So it is like, like, like you will find certain covenant theologians, they have no problem talking about the covenant of grace uh, being the new covenant, just like that, you know what I mean? Uh, I like the idea that it's fulfilled in the new covenant, you know? Anybody else? Anybody else as far as, what about Genesis 3.15? What would we call that, huh? The Proto-Evangelion or Evangelion or Gilliam or however you know, people want to transliterate that, which means the first gospel. That's right. It is. I mean, we could say this is the gospel of paradise because of what it promises. And so what I'm saying is this, is that Genesis 3.15 really forms the foundation of all soteriology in the Bible. Yeah. How, how so? Maybe, maybe you guys can help me with that part. I mean, how can I make a claim like that? Anybody? Anybody? People are like, I don't know. It's your claim. You you justify it. <laughs> I kind of think of uh, what Isaiah says for, uh, in Isaiah 46, telling the future from the past, basically, ah. that what God speaks of and of old comes to pass in the future. And so oh, yeah. what God spoke here, he will accomplish by his word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I forget where that is exactly in Isaiah where he says declaring the end from the beginning. What is it? 40, yeah, 40, 16? 46 verse 10. Yeah, there you go. 46 verse 10. And um, that's important because uh, at least one biblical theologian used that verse as like the basis of his biblical theology, showing that what, what Isaiah is saying there is that the, if you want to understand the eschatology of Scripture, you have to go to the protology of Scripture, which I agree with absolutely. You know, you have to go to the beginning to understand how the end is going to play out and how it works and all of that. Um, why, don't we, why don't we situate the covenant of grace in its context? So let's walk quickly through chapter 3, okay? And, and just please stop me or uh, ask questions or anything as we just kind of work through this chapter and some of the things that are revealed here, um, because I, I definitely, I, th- I think it's very important, because number one, you know, we're going to find out that the covenant of grace is spoken into the void of the fall, right? And, and it answers that. But, but let's, just, let's just begin by looking at verse one, the serpent being more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any of the tree of the garden. So what does the serpent do? Uh, This is why we uh, identified the serpent as not just a snake, but he is actually the anti-lord of the covenant. And as a matter of fact, what the serpent is trying to do is he's trying to form a new covenant with the woman. Isn't that amazing? Here is an antichrist coming in with a new covenant. Sound familiar? Right? As Christ brings a new covenant, serpent wants to bring, he wants to preempt that new covenant. He wants to bring his own new covenant. You see? And, um, yeah, absolutely. Just really amazing what he is, what he's uh, doing here. He's trying to get allegiance uh, from uh, mankind. Why is he trying to do this? What is the point? Um, Some theologians would say that the serpent understood the promise of chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, that what God was promising there was the kingdom of God, right? Remember chapter 2, 15 to 17, the covenant of works. What was the promise of the covenant of works? Anyone? 
What was the ultimate promise of the covenant of works? What was ultimately at stake at the covenant of works? Eternal life, which, which, is, which, is, which is understood, well, access to the tree, but ultimately for eternal life, right? So eternal life understood as what? Just unending life? What's that? In the kingdom of God. That's right. So especially when we look at Scripture, <laughs> you know, the way we're supposed to read Scripture, which don't tell certain people that I said this, but you're supposed to read Scripture backwards. I mean, you're supposed to kind of know the end of the story, go back to the beginning of the story, and that informs the beginning of the story, right? So g- historical, literal, literal, grammatical theologians would say, no, that is not the way that you interpret Scripture ever. You let Scripture speak for itself. You go to Genesis chapter 3 and let it speak on its own merit. So you do the grammar, you do the original context, basically introduction material, and you don't look at the last part of the Bible. Well, the reason I'm going like that is because it's childish. We have the Bible. (laughs) So it's like, well, we're not supposed to look at the Bible in order to interpret the Bible? Uh, That's not what the Reformers taught. They taught the analogy of the faith. They taught that uh, we interpret Scripture by Scripture. And so, yes, we go to all of the Bible to inform any one passage of the Bible. That is the best way to approach the Bible. And we understand that what was going on in Genesis is that the serpent is trying to preempt the kingdom of God. If he can just get the man and the woman to fall, then God's kingdom ambitions will not be uh, realized, right? And so what is the serpent offering Eve right here? This is almost like a prelude to what happens with Christ, that the serpent is offering Adam and Eve his own kingdom. If they will just enter into covenant with him as Lord, then they could, that he will reward them. Does this sound familiar? Who else did Satan do that to? The last Adam. Jesus. The last Adam, Matthew chapter 4, Right. He talks about (laughs) he talks about uh, in his temptation, he says, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the glory of the kingdoms of the world everywhere. Forget the kingdom of God that God promised you. Worship me and I'll give you your own kingdom. And you don't even have to die and go to the cross to get it. It's the easy way to get all the glory of the kingdoms that I can give you. And of course, we saw how that played out. But what if we take. That interaction, if we take the victory of Christ over the serpent, then we understand that in this protology, what's going on is that Adam failed where Jesus succeeded. And so the minute that this snake slithered into the garden, right, and committed the first abomination of desolation by presenting presenting himself to be God in the temple of God, which is Eden, in the sanctuary of God, right? The first Adam should have killed the serpent. He should have defeated the serpent right there in then. Um, matter of fact, the basis of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that will actually become the foundation of what theologians have pointed out, that in the future in Scripture, uh, a tree is often a symbol of judgment, right? Solomon when he would sit and he would judge the people of Israel, he would be seated next to a tree, which was like a judgment tree, 
right? And so it just spoke of wisdom and of the discerning of good and evil. And so a lot of theologians, including G.K. Beale and many others, what they point back to is that that goes all the way back to the garden. That Adam, being at the judgment tree in knowledge of good and evil, he should have discerned and he should have killed the serpent or he should have defeated the serpent. And therefore, he would have remained obedient to the covenant, but he did not. But Jesus did what you know the first Adam did not do. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, maybe it's a stretch, but I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think that just kind of scratches the surface. Remember, to have a really good Christology, uh, to, to have a really good understanding of Adam, the, the, the best rule of thumb is look at Adam 2 to understand Adam 1. Look at Adam 1 to understand Adam 2. Why did Jesus have to go through the things that he went through? Well, we know based on Romans chapter 5, we know that there is a principle of obedience or a principle of righteousness that was operative in both men. And both men had the opportunity, I mean, we can say that we understand we're all Calvinists and we understand God's decrees, but in a sense, it was like Adam had the opportunity to pass down eternal life to his posterity, which he did not. Instead, he passed down death, right? But Jesus did not pass down death to his people. He passed down life. He grants us eternal life, um, all of those kinds of things. So any questions, comments, insights, anything you've been meditating on as far as any of that? Yeah. I don't know how else to ask it. So I'll just ask That's okay. Maybe. That's right. Mm-hmm. Definitely, Luke chapter 3, <clears throat> I think it's verse 39, that says Adam is the son of God, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you want to look it up? Go ahead. Yeah, the genealogy of Jesus goes all the way back to Adam, and Adam is called the son of God. And, and then, and actually, more context, the way I'm thinking of it is uh, any other king, David specifically, given dominion or rule and reign over Jerusalem, Correct. And that's what I'm making the connection. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Adam is the prophet, priest, and king of God, just like Christ, right? And his duty was to perpetuate the image of God throughout all the earth by being fruitful and multiplying, by tilling and tending the garden, right? He was showing himself to be king. He was prophet because he was supposed to speak the truth of the covenant to his people, right, to his wife. And he was a uh, priest because he was doing priestly duties in the garden, um, maintaining the sanctuary of God, which he failed to do because he did not overcome the serpent but gave in to the serpent. All of these things. Um, okay, let's keep going because the fall is just so intriguing, right? So we know what happens, right? There's this negotiation going on between the woman and the serpent. Back and forth, they are negotiating, and she gives in. She obviously, she obviously transgresses the covenant. Sin does not... Uh, Sin does not become imputed. (laughs) Heathen's killing me. Sin does not become imputed until Adam eats. How do we know that? Uh, Verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was was good for food, and that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate then. After Adam ate, the eyes of both of them were open. Her eyes was were her eyes were not open until he ate. And once he ate, then her eyes and his eyes are open. Why so? 
because he is the federal head of the covenant. He is the representative of the covenant, right? God made the covenant with man. Uh, why? Why did he, was this God being chauvinistic in some sense? No, because Adam one was simply a prelude to Adam two, and so God made a covenant with Adam uh, because there was a second Adam already in the works. I guess that's a that's a I don't know how to distill it any more practically than that but there was a there was already a second adam on deck and so he had to form it with the first adam right any questions about that and then what do they do and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings that is so crucial because this is man trying to stand in his own righteousness trying to atone for their own sin, trying to cover their shame on their own, thinking that their own good works, isn't that amazing? So it's like now they're going to try to obey God. (laughs) Now they're going to try to be righteous and cover their own shame, right? Once the covenant is broken, unbelievable. And so now we can say about, see, prior to the fall, we could not say of Adam, his righteous deeds are like filthy rags, right? Right? But now that the fall has taken place, they are. Now they are. So now his, now his, even his effort to try to cover his shame is filthy in the sight of God because he's a covenant breaker, right? And then what happens as a result of the fall? You know what happens? So, so, so check, out, check this out, you guys. So we have, you know, first we have, you know, the, 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 the representative federal head of mankind. The word federal just speaks of a, of a, of a, legal representative right and what happens to him happens to us we live like that every single day of our lives if president trump goes to north korea and picks a fight with kim jun you know mentally ill over there (laughs) it goes picks a fight with that guy he is our federal head by the actions of one man it's kind of scary you know how trump can be (laughs) you know how crazy trump can be sometimes If he were to go pick a nuclear war with that psycho over there, right, he could put us all in danger. And you know what? We have nothing to say about it. He is our covenant head, in a sense. He is our, this is what the theologians called being a public person. He is the representative of all humanity in America. Therefore, what he does affects us all, like it or not, right? And, um, And God ordained that he would be the president. So if you have a problem with that, you know, Bible says he raises up and he tears down. And for this generation, for this time, it's Trump, baby. I mean, what can you say? (laughs) 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 You thought being a Calvinist was easy. Sometimes it's not. What happens after the fall is that the, the, then we become introduced to the day of the Lord. Uh, yeah. So the day of the Lord, and I'm convinced of this now pretty, pretty much. As convinced, shy of dogma as you can be. That that's what's going on here in verse 8. They heard the sound, the kol, Hebrew word, kol, okay? Uh, 
wonder if I can write that in Hebrew. Uh, oh, man. Kol. That's Hebrew. I, just, I don't know much Hebrew, but I just thought I'd try to impress you with some. <laughs> the sound, the word is also used for the voice of Yahweh, right? And in many contexts, this kol of the Lord is used in judgment contexts. When God speaks in judgment, they hear the voice of the Lord. When the voice speaks, right? Uh, think about at Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of the Lord, and the people said, we didn't want to hear no more, right? Uh, uh, tell the Lord not to speak lest we die. You know, so the voice of the Lord signified a terrifying expectation of judgment. And so what, contrary to many and most English translations, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and your translation, probably like my translation says, in the cool of the day. Verse 8, in my Bible, in my footnote, what about yours? Some ESV study Bibles in here probably. Uh, The wind or the breeze of the day, which the Hebrew word is just, we've talked about this before, but the Hebrew word is, yeah, that's atrocious, is ruach right? The Ruach of the day. And where have we seen the word Ruach in Genesis so far? We've only gone three chapters. What's that? Genesis 1, what? Verse 2, right? Where the Ruach was hovering over the water of the deep, you see? And so probably what's being said here is that the Lord was walking the garden in the spirit of the day. What is the significance of that? Because the spirit of the day here now all of a sudden takes upon an ominous um, connotation. All of a sudden, God's, God's presence suddenly becomes a symbol of judgment, not of blessing. Wow. Right? So it, they went from having a communion relationship with God to now encountering a God of judgment coming in his, in his terrifying sound. And then it says, and the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of God and among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, I think many of us, I think many of us have this picture in our mind. Come on, be honest, that the Lord is taking a nice leisurely, right? So it's like, so like cue the music, right? Dun, 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 right? And there's the Lord, going through the Garden of Eden, enjoying and smelling the roses like he always does, mm-hmm. right? And saying, uh, uh, Adam, <laughs> since I don't know, um, where are you? <laughs> right? Is that the picture you've had in your head for so long, right? And so what I would venture to say is that that is not at all what's taking place here. This is a divine interrogation of a covenant breaker. This is his covenant lawsuit against his covenant parties. He's prosecuting them. Where are you? This is not meant to be some kind, you know, sort of, uh, sort of, uh, you know, childish sort of banter back and forth. Absolutely not. God is not only just fully aware of them. God always questions people when they break his covenant. You see that all throughout the Minor Prophets. Uh, he says, I've heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so people would say, well, well, see, what made them afraid was that they were naked, not the sound of the garden. No, no, no. It's both. It's they heard the terrifying uh, 
uh, what I would call the terrifying sound of God's uh, basically like his uh, like his judgment sound uh, in in the prophets. By the time you get to the prophets, uh, they associate God's day of the Lord with like a, a a thundering chariot that's coming for the purpose of war, right and judgment. Wow. Just think about it, you guys, the flaming fire and the, the, just the calamitous, you know, sound that that must have made when God turned, you know, from a paradisical attitude of paradise, of peace and, and, and love. And, you know, all of a sudden they heard a sound they had never heard before, right? And then they realized, oh, no, we can't stand before this awful judgment sound like this. You see? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. Absolutely. They tried to hide from God. You know, this is this is reminiscent, you guys. This is reminiscent of where it talks about. Oh, man, I can't think of where it's at right now. Uh, maybe it's a Revelation chapter 14. I don't know. Somebody might have to look this up. But where it talks about, you know, that the people will say, right, when the second coming, you know, the rocks fall on us. You know, they want to hide under the mountains. You know what I mean? This is the way that Adam felt in the garden. They felt, you know, Adam felt like there was nowhere to hide. It's like Jonathan Edwards, he has a sermon where he talks about the day of judgment and how on that day the wicked will wish they could be anything other than what they are. They could wish that you were a stone or a rock or a toad, but anything other than who you are, which is standing before a holy God in your filthy rags, condemned under the weight of God's law, you will wish that you were anything other but who you really are. You know what I mean? It's amazing. But you see, yes, ma'am. Correct. Exactly. So it must be that there's something else is meant by that. That's what I'm saying is that some would say that this is sort of like God interrogating them, right, as he's bringing his lawsuit against them, right, as a prosecuting judge. So God went from their benevolent creator all of a sudden to their holy, righteous judge, you see, because of the fall. Yes, ma'am. Well, what things? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, but the only difference there is that wha- this, this, yeah, this is a context of judgment. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Yeah, I would say it's an aspect too of us having to give an account. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if he's going to inquire. Correct. That's right. This is calling them to account. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. Um, and so, what happens in light of this judgment? Um, how about this, you guys? I, tell me how you guys have read this before. He says, have you eaten of the tree? And then guess, see what he's doing now? He's going over the stipulations of the covenant. Right? He's laying out his covenantal case to them. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave me. And, and, and see, we usually, even in commentators, people make light of that. And be like, oh, there he is passing the buck like all other men do, right? Or something like that. I I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, How about the next phrase where it says, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? 
And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. How do we take that? You know, when she says the, the serpent deceived me and I ate, what do you think her tone was? Or what do you think, how did she say that? Was it, was it, was it like, was it like a blame game? Serpent. He did it. See what I'm saying? Was it? I don't know. I'm What's that? Sure. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. It seems like they're trying to justify themselves. Like we do. Mm hmm. You know, humans. Like we always try to justify our actions. Whether Correct. Wrong, um, try to make it right in our own eyes to satisfy our guilt and shame. Or Is it possible that it dawns on Eve how deceived she really was? That it wasn't so much a, you know, this like deviant, clever little get out of jail free card, you know, like the serpent did it, right? And, and, and deceit, but she says, because notice what she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Could have been, could it have been a very sorrowful confession here? The serpent deceived me. You know what I mean? She felt broken over being deceived by the serpent, you see? Um, maybe, maybe, right? Yes, sir. What if I don't disagree with what all what you guys all said as far as you're right. They're passing the buck. They're justifying themselves. All those things, right? It's a hypothetical question, but what if Eve was the only one to have eaten? Like we know that Adam didn't do a his job in shepherding, right? Eve. So would sin still have penetrated? Original sin still have penetrated the earth, or would she have just been cut off? And Adam is. Yeah, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the question is important on one level because it asks the question: How does original sin enter into the world? Scripture is very clear that sin entered into the world through one man, right? Um, I mean that's what Romans five says, right? Um, and even here, you know, it's not until he eats that their eyes are open. So it seems as if Eve, though she um, was deceived and she did break the covenant, that she would not pass down uh, the, the, the sin nature to, to her posterity because that was not her role. That was not her legal standing before God. Yeah. 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 I think there is evidence in the text that suggests that Adam and Eve uh, felt sorry for their sin, that they repented of their sin, that they trusted in God's, and they trusted in the gospel, and that they were justified. I think there's there's some evidence here of that. Uh, so notice what does God do in response to what the serpent has done? By the way, what is the serpent thinking up to this point? Huh? Got, got him, right? Yeah. Done. Right? Now, the serpent knows what happened prior to the fall. The serpent knows what God spoke prior to the fall. And so as far as he's concerned, the kingdom of God has been averted. Right? 
But he does not know what God will speak after the fall. So he's ignorant of the future. He does not know the future. Okay? And so he doesn't understand that there is another salvific promise that is rooted. Here we go, guys. So there is another salvific promise as we think about the covenant of grace. Okay? And we think about the covenant of works. Right? So there is another covenantal promise that governs the covenant of grace, which is what? That's right. The covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is where God promised to the Son, not to Adam, but he promised to Adam too, a kingdom and a people. Right? And on the basis of this covenant bond that God made, then the covenant of grace comes into into force. You see that? In, in, in time and space. Amazing, right? Because God has already made a pre-temporal covenant in the Trinity where he will save mankind, not through Adam's Adam 1's obedience, but through faith, right? Through the covenant of grace. That's amazing. Yes, sir? Could you say then that the covenant of redemption is, in a sense, like the anti-covenant, the archetype of covenant works, anti-typical anti of the covenant of grace, or typical of the anti-type of the covenant of grace? I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we understand each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right, because what Russell's talking about is very important. The covenant of works serves as the archetype, right? And nobody in here to question us what is the type, type, anti-type, and all that. Anyway, (laughs) so it is the archetype, which means it's the original pattern of what? Well, I would say it forms the basis of both of these in one sense, right? That there is a fulfillment, there is an anti-type, there's there's a fulfillment here, uh, there we go, uh, of, of, of the works principle that's introduced in the covenant of redemption because the covenant of redemption, with five minutes left, the covenant of redemption is, you know, is, is, is contingent upon the Son obeying the Father. And that same, that same organization is found in the covenant of works. Adam has to obey his Father, right? God, because Adam is called God's Son, right? So, 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 so what was covenanted between Father and Son at the archetypical level, right, is also reflected at in, at, I guess, well, yeah, that's right. Let's erase this. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. I thought I knew what you were talking about, Russell. You spoke better than I knew. This is a typical level, right? So that Adam becomes sort of the type of Christ, right, of what Christ would do. And on Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that the covenant of grace is ultimately rooted in the covenant of redemption. So the covenant of redemption is the foundation of the covenant of grace, right? What was covenanted? That God would save a people by faith in the Son who fulfills the legal demands of the covenant of works or the works principle, right? That's very important. That's a fine distinction. Man, we're getting into some deep waters here, but that's a fine distinction in theologians because we're not, we're not saying that Christ fulfilled the covenant of works exactly, right? When Jesus came, he did not go back into the Garden of Eden and not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what covenant of works did Adam fulfill? Well, he fulfilled the eternal covenant of redemption, 
right, which in principle fulfills God's legal demands that are represented here. Okay, that's the best that I can do as far as, you know, the relationship of those two. Any questions? Three minutes. You say Adam, you mean Christ. Or Christ, yeah. Yeah, Christ. Get it for the record, Christ. (laughs) Yes, sir. Right. Correct. Absolutely. And really, the covenant of works is again. This is. I have a chart. It's coming. I'm just waiting to unleash it on you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a chart where I map it all out. It came to me in the shower, and I was writing it in the window of the shower. <laughs> And I was like, it happens like this, you know? And I'm like, I'm going to forget this. So I hurry up, got out of the shower. I wrote it on a piece of paper, and I took a picture of it. And I said, this is it. And I sent it off to some friends, and I sent it, I sent it to Joseph Urban. I said, do you agree with this? I think it's pretty good. I, think it's pretty good. I don't see anything wrong with it, you know? I was like, okay, I, I just want to make sure I'm not insane right now, you know? But I think, it, I think it's right. So... Uh, he doesn't. <laughs> huh? Oh, I had pin it. Jonathan Edwards pinning the little notes, his meditations on his coat. He comes home with all these stick notes all over him. Things he doesn't want to for- forget, so he just unleash them one at a time, you know. Uh, yeah, so I think we need that, we need that chart to kind of tie it all together for us. Let's let's leave it there because we have to go, and I hate to do that, but we've got to go. We're gonna. This is just the beginning. Um, as far as my notes go, I read the definition of the covenant of grace. Maybe next week. <laughs> maybe next week. Brian told me don't go fast. 